We are in Judges chapter 4 tonight, and put your finger once you get there, and then also turn with me to Psalm 83. That's where we're going to start. Now, I will have you know, right off the bat, I did not make the schedule tonight, okay? This is not my fault. I am not the one who put the baby dedication the same night that I am teaching. I don't know who's responsible for that, but it wasn't me, okay? So I just want you to know that as, as you look at your clock, I just want you to be aware of that. So I am going to adopt Pastor Collins' model from this morning, or his motto, I should say, quickly. We're moving so quickly, so quickly we're moving, okay? Psalm 83 is where we're going to start. We're going to look at this, um, this very interesting story. I'll go ahead and give you some spoilers. I'll just give you the overview of the story, uh, and uh, then we're going to read through it. But Israel rebels. This is the, the theme of Judges. Rebels after a time of peace, and specifically the nature of that rebellion is idolatry, at which point another judge named Deborah is raised up. Deborah is also a prophetess, and that's kind of interesting, so we're going to talk about that. And uh, so Deborah is, again, a little bit different. The way that she judges is a little bit different than some of the other judges that we had. And she's a prophet in quite a bit different way than most of the prophets that we've seen as well um, in, in, throughout Scripture. And so, again, really exciting. So a group of, of Canaanites led by the commander Sisera plans to attack the Israelites with about 900 of their uh, iron chariots, these iron chariots and this big army, they're going to go attack the Israelites, and a storm comes, basically, and we learn about that in chapter 5 of Judges, and men are killed, and they all fall by the sword, Yahweh claims the victory, and Sisera flees to the tent of a woman named Yael, J-A-E-L, there's no J sound in Hebrew, so it's Yah, Yael is her name, and uh, she is the wife of Heber the Kenite, and he asks Yael to give him some water and then to lie and to hide him. She refuses, gives him more milk, and drives a tent peg through his head, killing him. No duh. <laughs> this is a natural consequence of tent pegs going through heads. And, and so a, a natural question to ask, I feel like, is what is this story doing in my Bible? Doesn't this thing tell me about bathtub-looking arcs, rainbows, and Jesus, what's with this tent peg getting driven through skulls thing? <laughs> and I'm not sure if I just, if I always get the weird stuff, if they do that to me on purpose too, um, or if the Bible is just that weird. I think it's probably more that. The Bible is just that weird and just that cool, frankly. And one of my favorite um, scholars and writers to, to learn things about the Bible from has a saying, and he says that if it's weird, it's important. If it's weird, it's important. The reason for that is because culturally speaking, things were a lot different in the ancient Near East, the time the Bible was being written than they are today. And, uh, but that, that excites me because it means we get to look into a, a window into another world when we look at the Bible. It's, it's very, very cool. The song Matt just sang has a line in there. It says, show me your wisdom. Show me things I've never seen before. That's my goal tonight, all right? That's my goal. Psalm 83. Let's read that ever so quickly. Keep not thou silence, O God. Hold not thy peace and be not still, O God. For lo, thine enemies make a tumult. And they that hate thee have lifted up the head. They have taken crafty counsel against thy people and consulted against thy hidden ones. They have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel 
may be no more in remembrance. Boy, that's still happening today. Turned on the news lately. For they have consulted together with one consent. They are confederate against thee. The tabernacles of Edom and the Ishmaelites of Moab and the Hagarines, Gabal and Ammon and Amalek, the Philistines with the inhabitants of Tyre. Asher is also joined with them. They have holpen the children of Lot, Selah. Do unto them as unto the Midianites, as to Sisera, as to Yabin at the brook of Kison. Those are all very important because those are characters in the story we're getting ready to read. Which perished at Endor, they became as dung for the earth. Make their nobles like Oreb and like Zeeb, yea, all their princes as Zeba and Zalmunah, who said, let us take to ourselves the houses of God in possession. Oh, my God, make them like a wheel, as the stubble before the wind, as the fire burneth a wood, and as the flame setteth the mountains on fire. So persecute them with thy tempest, and make them afraid with thy storm. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek thy name, O Lord. Wait a minute. Destroy them, burn them up, obliterate them, shame them, so that they can seek after you. What in the world? What is going on with that? Let them be confounded. I think I'm the one confounded. Let them be confounded and troubled forever. Yea, let them be put to shame and perish, that men may know that thou, whose name alone is Jehovah, art the most high over all the earth. Wow, crazy stuff. A brief prayer, and then we're diving into Judges 4. Head first. Dear Heavenly Father, I love you. Thank you so much for this time together. I pray now in this short time that you would help us learn something from your word that we can take and apply to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So we find in the passage that we just read that essentially there is a coordinated assault, and there has been first from the Tower of Babel um, against God by the nations, okay? There has been this coordinated assault. It's still going on today. The assault is, is literally still happening. And scripture as a whole is very much the story of, of God's overthrowing these other nations in time and um, ultimately ruling over all peoples of the earth. And when you read the end of the book, you find that we get to sort of co-rule with God, the peoples of the earth, judging over angels. It's actually really cool stuff. And um, this story, this judge's story, the one that I just read to you about Deborah and, um, and Barak and this commander and the tent peg and all of that, might seem strange or out of place or insignificant, um, but I believe it's actually part, a very important part of that larger story. And the cool thing about this is we get two chances, okay? So my, my dear friend Andy gets to teach Judges 5 next time. And Judges 5 is the same story as Judges 4. And so I uh, talked to Andy, and I was like, here's what I think we should do. I said, I'll take the really high-level, nerdy theology stuff, and then you'll come in and save the day next week with something that these people can actually use. And so that is, <laughs> that, that is kind of the plan, uh, but I'm really, really excited about it. See, here's something that you have to understand about the Bible, okay? The biblical writers and, and the first audience, if you will, who had the Bible. There are two dynamics that you have to look at. There is a literal dynamic to the Bible, and there is a literary 
dynamic to the Bible, okay? On the one hand, you have the events as they happened being recorded as true history, okay? On the other hand, you have the events being written down. And they are written down in such a way as to communicate that history, but they're also written down to communicate other ideas too. Ideas that are a little bit harder for us to understand in our English translations, but would have been immediately obvious to them. And this is just a cool example of where we get a a second chance, right? We, We get to go through the story twice so that we can look at both angles. And in a certain way, both angles are given in those different chapters. Multiple ways like this, that this happens in the Bible or multiple times, I should say. Another example is the defeat of the uh, Pharaoh in the Exodus story. Exodus 14 is sort of the blow-by-blow historical narrative of it happening. Exodus 15 is the song of Moses and the song of the Israelites sort of poetically giving glory to God and thinking about that deeper sort of meaning. And so they're sort of meshed together, this story, and so we have two angles. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do with me tonight. How many people do I have here who like to read fiction books? Give me the hands. I need the hands. Do you like to read fiction books? No. Wow. Okay. There's a few of you. Okay, cool. Great. This will be great for you, okay? Now, just to make sure that we're getting everybody here, who likes to watch movies? Does anybody like to watch movies? There we go. You guys, I was at school with you guys, right, where I, I saved the book for later, and I just watched the movie, okay? TV shows. We all watch TV. Okay, so we all know how to engage with fiction. Here's what I want you to do, because the Israelites, uh, because of their worldview, their culture, they weren't like post-enlightenment rationalistic people who have dreams of going to Mars and are like close to doing it, okay, like us. So we think about the world very differently (laughs) than they did, okay? They were able to not have this weird thing going on in their mind where they would look at really big, like, cosmic ideas and also um, the day-to-day life. They saw it all as one. We don't do that. We're, We're just kind of bad at that in general, just because of where we live in time. So here's what we're gonna do, if, if you'll go along this little thought experiment with me. We're gonna take, we're gonna take the, the literal truth of this story, the actual thing that just happened, what I just, the little outline that I just gave you. We're gonna take that, we're gonna tie it up in a nice little Christmas box. We can put a big red bow on it if you want to. It's gonna be right here. We're just gonna put it on the shelf, okay? We're just gonna take that. It's safe, it's not going anywhere. It's totally cool, like no worries. If, if I've done my job right, Andy's gonna come along next week or whenever he's teaching, unwrap the little box, take it back out, and we're gonna be all good again, okay? But for right now, I want you to, to enter the same mindset as we go through the story that you have when you're reading a great book, a great epic fantasy, a great epic adventure, or you're entering the world of a movie. And all you're really doing is helping yourself along to do what the ancient Israelites knew how to do as a function of their world and who they were and the time that they were alive. So I'm asking you to, the best of your ability, to put the ancient Israelite in your head. And if I could get one big idea across to you as we go through here, it would be that God is always telling a larger story. God is always telling a larger story. And I've got 20 minutes (laughs) to give you the same mind-blown emoji experience that I have studying and I spent a lot longer than 20 minutes studying it. So here we go. All right. Judges 4 and verse 1. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord when Ehud was dead. Stop there. Point number one. Okay, here we are. By the way, I'm titling this sermon. I should have gave you that a little earlier. Echoes of Eden and Exodus. Echoes of Eden and Exodus. Now follow me, okay? So number one is that we see is the meta-narrative of Scripture. 
the meta narrative of scripture. And that's a really big, you know, $10 word that essentially means the big story, right? The big story that's going on. This judges cycle that we see of disobedience is a part of this larger narrative framework, okay? And what am I talking about here? Well, I'm talking about the story that began in Eden, began in Genesis, and that ends in Revelation. What you may or may not have realized is that the entire cosmic story is told throughout the Bible over and over and over again in many different ways using different images, okay? And so you'll get images throughout the story like sea dragons, like serpents, the talking snake. Snakes don't talk, y'all know that. So the talking snake in Genesis 3. Again, part of a larger story. We're entering that mindset, right? Okay, part of a larger story. There is, there's these monsters in the ancient Near East that were, I think, uh, in their mind, in their imagination, they were based on the scary places, the places where, where you couldn't live. You can't, you can't live out in the wilderness where the lions and the jackals and the scorpions and the snakes and the serpents are. You can't live out there for very long as a human being. As a human being, you can't really live out there on the ocean. They didn't exactly have carnival cruise ships at the time, right, uh, or houseboats, okay? You, you couldn't live out there. That's where the bad stuff was. And, and as you trace through the story of Scripture, man, you just get these interesting interesting stories like Jonah, for example, where you've got him being swallowed up by the belly of this great uh, fish. And depending on, how, again, who you're reading after and, and kind of how you're looking at the story, there are elements in there that are really strange where the, the fish can be seen as sort of like the, the cosmic, the, the chaos dragon, the sea dragon, the, the scary thing, the big scary thing that these people had to face. There's a, 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 a verse in Isaiah 27. We don't have time uh, to go there. But it ties all these images together and it talks about the old serpent, the old snake in the garden. And it, it creates a, a connection between them and the chaos monster, the, the sea dragon. Moby Dick, if you will, is like a modern reference to that same sort of idea, the spirit of the dragon in the sea, the bad guy, the devil, the serpent, the snake. Again, all of these ideas in the Israelite mind meant bad, bad, bad. And what's interesting is, at various points throughout the story, key biblical figures, the city of Babylon, the city of Egypt, the pharaoh, um, the kings of Tyre, all these different characters are made in connection with the serpent from the Garden of Eden, with the dragon in Revelation who will eventually be destroyed by God. And, and so this biblical story, like many others, essentially is a retelling of that but that's not very obvious when you just hear what I, what I read to you about, well, you know, guy comes along and they drive a, 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 a tent peg through his head. What is with that? That's sort of weird. What I think the point of all of this, why this biblical story is retold over and over and over again, the story of the, of the dragon being slain, um, is it, it, the point is to show that God's plan is still continuing. Even when it looks dark, even when it looks grim, even when life looks hard, which the Israelites faced this over and over and over again, God's story was still continuing. So again, there was a, a way that this text was written so that the original readers, the people who first read it, would immediately see what they needed to see. So let's move on then to number two. That was point one, the meta narrative of scripture. Hey, I only have three points, so we're, we're doing okay. We're doing okay. But now we have to read the actual text, all right? So 
Number two is the key players in the story. Key players in the story. So let's pick up at verse two. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Yabin, king of Canaan, that reigned in Hazor. Okay. Y'all know in the, in the Bible, this is something you've probably heard before, that names are important, right? Names have meaning. Names were given to represent certain things because it called ideas to mind, okay? People were named, for example, in the Bible. It's like um, there was a, a, a well, I just read this in, in Genesis where, um, I forget the name of the well now, but, but basically the, the well was named after the, the, the covenant that was made, okay? And so like things will be named based on ideas, okay? That's the important point. So King Yabin, his name means intelligent, discerning, wise, I want you to think back to the, gar- the Garden of Eden, the serpent who was the wisest of all the beasts of the field. He was the, he was the cunning. He was the crafty one. Yabin, intelligent, discerning, wise. That's interesting. Could be a coincidence. Could be. The captain of whose host, still in verse 2, was, go with me here, Sisra. Sisra. Now, now, I know that sounds corny, but I can't prove this either. Okay, so this one, this is the least amount of, evidence I have for this, okay? But Sisera is not a Hebrew name. It's not a Semitic name at all. Kind of sketchy. We don't really know where the name comes from. And it was a common thing in ancient times to name things, to put names with things or for names to be involved that were images of something else to help you call something to mind. So interesting. I don't know. Sisera. Think serpent. Think the serpent. Think the snake. Sisera, right? Kind of interesting. All right. Let's keep reading. Who dwelt in Herosheth of the Gentiles. This word, Herosheth of the Gentiles, in your King James, if you were to read the actual Hebrew rendering of that, it's Herosheth Hagoyim. Herosheth Hagoyim, which means the carving or the handiwork of the nations. The carving or the handiwork of the nations. Think back to Genesis 11, the Tower of the Babel. What did they do? They built. They carved, they used handiwork to, to build a tower to honor their gods, to try to bring their gods down to them instead of serving the one true God. Well, that's the sin that Israel is caught in right now in verse 1. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. It's talking about idolatry. Okay. So we keep on reading. Harasheth Hagoyim, we have the crafty king. We have the potentially the snaky uh, slithery commander of the army, possible phonetic ties to that snake imagery. And then we have these people are the carving and the handiwork of the nations. That is where they're from. They're very crafty. Okay. And the children of Israel, verse 3, cried unto the Lord, for he had 900 chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and 20 years he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. Who else had chariots who mightily oppressed the children of Israel? Egypt, that was Pharaoh, right? That was, the, that was the Pharaoh. So we have the cunning, the crafty king. We have the sneaky serpent uh, commander of the army who's got chariots who oppresses the people of Israel. Those are the Exodus themes, the oppressive themes. And all throughout, there's, there's multiple places. I don't have time to read them, but Exodus 14, Joshua 11, Joshua 17, and also Judges 1, 19. 
are other places where this theme has been repeated about the chariots. It started with Exodus 14, of course. Chariots and oppression and Exodus and the Pharaoh. Okay, cool. More people in the story. Let's move on to verse number four. And Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, she judged Israel at that time. Now, uh, Deborah, her name means bee. She's a bee. She's just a little honeybee. She's floating around. She's doing her thing. I want you to think about something. The land of milk and honey. What do we think that that meant? It meant that there were, there was honey, there was food, there was cows, there was lusciousness, there was food, there was deliverance for the children of Israel. Are you, I hope you're entering the right, right? This all literally happened. Again, that's still on our box. We, we've got our box. We're just thinking deeper now. We're thinking like we're reading a story. Because we are. We're reading a story, a very cool story. So we have a bee who is a uh, prophetess, and she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah, the palm, her palm tree, her luscious garden between Ramah and Bethel in Mount Ephraim, and the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Well, that word Ramah means high place, and the word Bethel means the house of God. So the bee is sitting in her luscious garden under the palm tree, right there, smack tab, in between the high place and the house of God in Mount Ephraim, which literally means the hill country or the land of fruitfulness. She's in the garden. So we have this story being set up. We have the bee, the innocent little honeybee in the garden of Eden, if you'll go with me there, getting ready to face the oppressors from the Exodus story who have iron chariots, and they're crafty, and they're cunning, and they're wise, and they represent evil. Verse number six. Let's keep reading. Yes. And she sent and called Barak, the son of Abinoam. Barak, by the way, that word there, I have that wrote down as well, means lightning. Lightning. Okay. Why does that matter? So B said to lightning. Why does that matter? Well, the... uh, Main enemy here, Sisera, Yabin, they were facing the Canaanites, yes? Guess who the Canaanite high god was? His name was Baal or Baal. You've probably heard him said before. And he was the Canaanite storm god, okay? He was the high Canaanite storm god, and so he was bad news. And much of the Bible is sort of talking about God defeating Yahweh, the, the biblical God, defeating the gods of the other nations. We know that. And so the character is kind of... Getting on those themes. Barak, lightning. He's the storm god. Okay. Verses, verse 6. Let's continue. She sent and called Barak, the son of Abinoam, out of Kadesh Naphtali, and said unto him, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw toward Mount Tabor, and take with thee 10,000 men of the children of Naphtali, and of the children of Zebulun. And I will draw thee unto the river Kishon Sisera, the captain of uh, Yabin's army with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver him into thine hand. Stop there. The river Kishon is also called the Wadi Kishon, and a Wadi is basically a seasonal torrential storm bed. So this is God essentially saying that he is going to deliver Israel from the hand of the oppressors in the midst of the waters, and the oppressors have chariots. When did that happen? Before, my friends. 
So cool, so cool. So let me just kind of like recenter us here. And I know I'm, we're going so fast. We're moving. We're going so fast. At least we are attempting to. We have Deborah the bee, the mouthpiece of God in the story, sitting under her palm tree in an Edenic scene with mountains, gardens, flames. Uh, I, I don't even know if I mentioned that, but Lapido, his name means flame or torch. And the serpent figure, between the high places in the house of God and the land of fruitfulness, being cast against the serpent in an oppressive Exodus-like scene, complete with iron chariots and, as we're going to see here, a victory that comes through the water. And by the way, the victory is in part through Barak, the guy whose name means lightning, which is a total diss against the Canaanite storm god, Baal. Okay. Cool. You with me so far? This is fun. The Bible is so cool. Are you guys excited? I'm excited. If y'all don't like the Bible after this, put down your movies, put down your books, and pick up the Bible. I, I didn't put this in here. It was here when I woke up this morning, all right? All right. Verses, verses 8 to 9. This is interesting, okay? And, and Barak, lightning, said to her, if thou wilt go with me, then I will go. Boy, he's so manly. He's talking to Deborah, right? And Barak said unto her, if thou wilt go with me, then I will go. But if thou wilt not go with me, then I will not go. Okay? And, and this, is so, this is so interesting. She said, surely, well, hang on, let me, let me, let me, let me, let me just back up a little bit here. Because I want to make sure, I want to make sure you, you, you catch this. So Deborah, in, in verse 6, halfway through, she said, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, go and draw toward Mount Tabor, etc., etc.? Didn't the Lord command this? And now Barak is saying, well, here's the deal. Yeah, he might have commanded that. But look, if you go with me, I'll go. Otherwise, I am not going to go. And so here you have a man and a woman debating, what did God say? When's the last time you saw a man and a woman in the Bible debating? What did God say? What did, did God really mean that I should go up there and that I should do that? Again, this was immediately apparent to the original readers of this story. So... Deborah goes, and um, Barak, therefore, misses the chance to get the glory to be the one to crush the snake. It's like Eden, but happening in reverse. This time, the female will be the deliverer. So, let's keep reading. She said, I will surely go with thee, notwithstanding the journey that thou takest, shall, be not, uh, shall not be thine honor. For the Lord shall, that, excuse me, for the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. So at this point, you're thinking that the story that he, or the, the, the person that, um, the woman, that Sisera is going to be sold into the hand of is Deborah. Hmm. But it's not Deborah. We keep reading. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and he went up with 10,000 men and his feet, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite, which was of the children of Hobab and the father-in-law of Moses, had severed himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent unto the plain of Zanaim, which is by Kadesh. So Heber the Kenite, this guy Heber, his name means ally, and he was an ally of the person in the story. Again, the names matter. Okay. He was kind of on neutral ground there. And we were thinking, well, who's this guy? Because verse 12 moves right on for him. Well, we're getting to that, okay? Verse 12, and they showed Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoah, was gone up to Mount Tabor. And Sisera gathered together all of his chariots, even 900 chariots of iron, and all the people that were there with him from Herosheth, the craftiness, the handiwork of the Gentiles, unto the river of Kishon. And the third point, gentlemen, if you want to go ahead and put that up there, this is, carries us through the rest of the chapter, because the scene starts to pick up the pace, is the prophetic destruction of the serpent. Okay, 
You're with me. I, I can tell you're with me. You're, you're listening so intently. I can tell you're with me. One more little detail. Okay, this person, Heber, okay, his descendants, the Kenites, he is, now go with me, he is thought, that name, the Kenites, is basically spelled with a K in our Bibles, but it's the same word as Cain, descendant of Cain. Okay, now, did Cain, like, survive through the line of Noah, through the flood? I don't know. We're not, we're not talking about all that. That's, somebody else can answer that question. What we're talking about is here, this is the person that's in the story who is a descendant somehow from the line of Cain, who is going to play a pivotal role in this story. Okay, verse 14. And Deborah said unto Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord hath delivered Sisera into thine hand. Is not the Lord gone out before thee? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor and 10,000 men after him. And the Lord discomfited, that's a weird word, discomfited Sisera and all his chariots and all his hosts with the edge of the sword before Barak so that Sisera lighted down off his chariot and fled away. He slithered away on his feet. Okay, so Sisera gets away. His army is slain all by the sword, um, all 900 of the chariots and whoever all was with them. And <clears throat> the Lord discomforted Sisera. That word discomf discomfited, it, it means uh, confusion or, or troubled. In Exodus 14 in the King James, it is translated as panic. It's the exact same thing that the Lord did to the army of Pharaoh when Egypt was, or when Israel was getting away. Boy, that's interesting. Okay. Barak pursued after the chariots and after the host unto Harasheth of the Gentiles. And all the host of Sisera fell unto the edge of the sword. And there was not a man left. So Barak, lightning, the guy who is making fun in the story of the Canaanite storm god, chased their people back home to the craftiness of the nations and is wiping them out or intends to wipe them out. But now the story goes to Sisera. Fled away on his feet to the tent of Yael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. Ah, Heber, the ally, the Kenite, the descendant of Cain, his wife, Yael, is now in the story here, okay? For there was peace between Yabi and the king of Hazor, the crafty one, and of Heber, the Kenite. Verse 18, and Yael went out to meet Sisera. You got five more minutes. We can do five more minutes. You have to. You don't have a choice. And Yael went out to meet Sisera and said unto him, turn in, my lord, turn in to me, fear not. And when he had turned in unto her into the tent, she covered him with a mantle. She's making him nice and warm and cozy. And he said unto her, give me. By the way, covered. He covered her. There was also covering in the Garden of Eden. Just saying. I mean, that's there, okay? And he said unto her, give me, I pray thee, a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. And so naturally, she opened a bottle of milk and gave him drink and, and covered him. And for the record, that milk would actually be more like a sort of like a yogurt, like a warm that's nice warm yogurt. Apparently, scientifically speaking, apparently that's got some kind of agent in it that makes you sleepy. And again, he said unto her, stand in the door of the tent, and it shall be when any man doth come and inquire of thee and say, is there any man in here? Thou shalt say no. So the serpent figure is telling the woman to use some deception. Wonder where we've seen that before. Then Yael, Heber's wife, took a nail of the tent and took a hammer in her hand, and went softly and quietly, deceiving the deceiver unto him, and smote the nail into his temples, and fastened it into the ground, for he was asleep and weary, so he died. And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Yael came out to meet him, 
and said unto him, Come, and I will show thee the man whom thou seekest. And when he came into the tent, behold, Sisera lay dead, and the nail was in his temples. So let's stop there real quick. So the seed of the woman crushed the head of the serpent. You with me? So the seed of the woman crushed the head of the serpent. Now, in this case, because the man wasn't man enough to do it, the seed of the woman is, in this case, a woman in the story. In their time and culture, that's supposed to be offensive to them as well, right? So that's, that's sort of an extra thing, too. It's like, Israel, you are not holding up to your end of the bargain. My goodness, there's just, like, there's just so much, okay? So if that wasn't interesting enough... There's even more going on behind the scenes that I, I can't cover in three minutes. But in Judges 5, where Andy's going to be, verses 20 to 23, this is just interesting. Verses 5, 20 to 23, it says of this battle, they fought from heaven. The stars in their courses fought against Sisera. The stars in their courses. If you were in my Defense Against the Dark Arts slash Supernatural class, you learned that stars are ancient code for heavenly beings because they didn't know that stars were balls of gas like we do. And so they used stars to talk about heavenly beings, both those who were for the Lord and those who were against the Lord. And verse 21 clarifies, the river of, of Kishon swept them away that ancient river, their iron chariots, they were destroyed in the midst of the waters, if you will. That ancient river, the river Kishon, oh, my soul, thou hast trodden down strength. They were the horse hooves broken by the means of the prancings, the prancings of the mighty ones. And the angel of the Lord's even there. Kershi Morose says the angel of the Lord, that's a, a, a theophany, the pre-incarnate Christ. He's even on the scene. Why is he on the scene? Well, again, in the, in the mind of the ancient Israelite, the, the battle, the war that was happening on the ground, was mirroring a reality that was just as real, maybe even more real, that was happening in the supernatural world, that was happening in heaven. The stars are there. The angel of the Lord is there. Everybody is there on the scene. So I love the conclusion of this story. Verses, um, let's see, let me, get it, uh, let me get to the right spot here. Verses 23 and 24. So God subdued on that day Yabin, the king of Canaan, before the children of Israel... And the hand of the children of Israel prospered and prevailed against Yabin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Yabin, the king of Canaan. So if I, were to, if I were just to paraphrase what we just read there and then the whole of the story. In that day, by the way, that day is a common biblical motif for the day of the Lord, the day when the Lord will set all things right. In that day, after... A descendant of Cain's house crushes the head of the serpent figure in the story, Sisera. God subdued the wise and crafty one, Yabin. And then God's people, Israel, I hope y'all are getting this. And then God's people, Israel, prospered and prevailed against the wise and crafty one until he was ultimately destroyed. That's what we just read. Now, I really hope there's a flashing light going off somewhere in your head right now. If there's not, please listen back to that because this is exactly what Jesus did and our current position as God's people. We are the ones who, through the victory of Christ on the cross, are prospering. It might not seem that way sometimes, but we are because we've read the end of the book. We're prospering 
and prevailing against the wise and crafty one. But is he gone yet? No, he's not gone yet. But he will ultimately be destroyed. They, they prevailed against Yabin, the king of Canaan, the intelligent wise one, until they had destroyed the king, Yabin of Canaan. Now that, my friends, I don't know about y'all, but I think that is a cool story. It literally tells the entire gospel. Again, we read the name Deborah. They saw B. We see the name Barak. They read lightning. They know what these words mean. Again, they're looking at them in a way that's really hard for us to look at, having read the story a bunch of times. Well, next week, I think it's next week, Andy will come along. Is it not next week? Whenever it is. Whenever Andy teaches, he will go unwrap our nicely wrapped box on the shelf. He will take it off the shelf. He will unwrap it, and he will give you something very practical that you can use, I'm sure, in your day-to-day life. But for now, I just want you to appreciate that the Bible is so cool. It's, like, really cool. And God is always telling a larger story if you're willing to look for it. And that chapter is like one example of probably five I could name off the top of my head. And there are a lot more that are like that. So um, I love the gospel, man. The Bible is so cool. It's real. It's true. It's enduring. It matters. The story matters. The babies that we just dedicated, that speaks to the importance of the larger fight and the larger battle that we're in that is constantly raging. I'm glad to be on the winning side of that battle, aren't you? Oh, I'll do it. I'll do it. I will pray. I shall pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you so much for this time, for your word. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for this wonderful story. And we're deeply appreciative that you would allow us to play any part at all in the story that you're telling. Lord, may we fall in love with our Bibles over and over and over again, every time we read and every time we study. In your name we pray. Amen.